0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. If Proverbs, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15, we're looking at verses 1 through 18 this afternoon. Proverbs 15, beginning in verse 1. Let's now give our attention to God speaking to us through His Word. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox in hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Well, this concludes the reading of God's Word. May God now be pleased to give us the help of His Spirit to illumine this text. Well, when something goes wrong with our plumbing, I usually call a plumber uh, to fix it. Now, it's not because of lack of tools. Even if I did lack tools, I can go out and buy them. Probably cost the same as the bill. The reason I call them is because I do not have the necessary skill uh, to do the job. If I tried to do it, I would just end up calling them anyway and just creating more of a mess for them. But the same is true with electricians, mechanics, home builders, and physicians. We don't go there to them merely because we don't have the tools, but because we don't have the skill. I mean, you can hand me a scalpel and I can cut your body, but I'm not going to do it in a way with skill and wisdom i'm not going to know how to do it and this illustrates what wisdom is god has given us certain tools and wisdom is to know how to use them skillfully without wisdom we end up being like a person trying to use a scalpel on someone without the necessary school uh, skills and so today we're going to look at two tools that require wisdom, that require skill. They are the tongue, knowledge. They can either be used for great good, or they can cause a lot of damage. So first, the tongue. Verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now this comes on the heels of what we saw last time in Proverbs 14.35 with regards to a king in his wrath due to someone acting shamefully, but a tongue can turn away this wrath. It lies with the tongue to be able to do this, but not a tongue that shouts loudly or exerts the most energy. Rather, it is a tongue that gives a soft answer. Now, soft answer is not merely saying something quietly or whispering, even though it certainly involves the absence of shouty and yelling, but it primarily refers to the content and tone of the tongue. Its opposite is stated in this verse, a harsh word, which are things like a stinging, passive-aggressive remark. Well, since you don't seem to get things, I'll just say this really slowly. Or, well, you got hired there. It <laughs> must have been desperate. Or, well, you know, <clears throat> you did not vote for uh, Biden, so why would I expect much out of you? Things like that, these stinging re- remarks. That stirs up anger. And it's not only the, the content, but also the tone in which it is spoken. Yeah, yes, okay, get off my back. I'll get to it. Would you just chill out? Just calm down. That just stirs up anger. Making accusations, attacking the person's character, yelling your point, giving insults, a slight backhanded comment are all harsh words that stir up anger. But a soft answer is void of these things. They speak in a respectful Gentle manner. It communicates in a way that isn't overbearing, but cautious, carefully stated, and kind. It acknowledges the other person's perspective, where you could say, Okay, I could see where you're getting that, but what I meant to communicate is this. It acknowledges legitimate harm and offense. It's not afraid to say, Please forgive me for this, and to acknowledge the person's hurt. I did this and that was hurtful. It's a tongue that's used as a tool for the other person's benefit rather than as a way to attack and get defensive. But it's more than simply knowing how to use your tongue. It comes from the state of one's heart. Verse 18, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So a hot-tempered person is an angry person whose heart is wicked within. And it's like gasoline that explodes at any spark. They say biting and offensive things can point out others' sins in detail while being completely blind to their own. However, the one who is slow to anger, and why is somebody slow to anger? What we saw last week in Proverbs 14.29, it's because of understanding. It's because of wisdom. It's because of knowledge. That person does the exact opposite in that he can even quiet an already flared up contention. It really comes down to one's own heart and spirit. Then verse 2, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. It's an overlap with knowledge and tongue here. But this can be translated as the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. Uh, This is not just talking about having knowledge, but rather how you use it, how you dispense it. Uh, Charles Bridges says, The fool may have a mass of knowledge in possession, but from the want of the right use it runs to waste. Wisdom is proved not by the quantity of knowledge, by its right application. So it takes knowledge and uses it skillfully through the tool of the tongue. And this helps us where some people erroneously take Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 8.1 where it says knowledge puffs up and says, well, knowledge is bad. Do away with knowledge. Just be ignorant. and throw away that tool. But that's not the issue. The issue is not the tool. The issue is how one uses it, whether it's to puff up or it is to benefit others. Wisdom knows how to use that tool. Then verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Now this literally means a healing tongue. It's a tongue that knows how to soothe. It's a tongue that knows how to comfort those who are troubled and anxious. It knows how to bind up the brokenhearted. It speaks encouraging words that build up, lift up, and puts the wind back in people's sails. This is like our Savior who said in Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And this is said to be a tree of life. Now, the tree of life in the garden was a symbol of the fullness of life and the most blessed life. So, a tree of life refers to blessing in one's life, a reprieve from the curse. And this healing tongue restores, refreshes, and blesses the hearer. And this would ultimately come in Christ through the preaching of the gospel, through giving the best news. There ever was that your sins have been forgiven for Christ's sake, that Christ has paid for your sins, that Christ has atoned for all sin, that he has conquered death, that he has been raised from the grave. What better news can you give somebody on their deathbed? Hey, I have your best life now to tell you about. Or what do you tell somebody when they're on their deathbed? I have, I have 12 hours to live. What do you say? Say Christ conquered death. Christ conquered the grave. And you're going to see your Lord because of what He has done. But what, what, what other news is there? But as the end of verse 4 says, perverseness in one's tongue rakes the spirit and crushes it. That he or she had sorrow to people through harsh words, insults, sinful and angry speech, and also by misusing the law, placing people under the burden of the law, crushing their spirit. Then jumping down to verse 7, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fool. the fools. Uh, this word for spread is the idea of dispensing, of being generous, and the wise know how to spread knowledge in a way that benefits others we all know people that have a lot of knowledge and we'll just go on and on and and on and on about trivial facts but someone who has wisdom in combination with knowledge knows how to spread knowledge in a way for the good and edification of others not so fools they just pour forth folly as we saw in verse 2 they are devoid of true and useful knowledge and when they do have knowledge they don't know how to edify with it then this is a good swing to the next tool that requires wisdom and that's knowledge we're kind of jumping around here but verse 14 the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge but the mouths of fools feed on folly so how does one gain knowledge well it's by being taught so The person with an understanding heart seeks knowledge because he understands that he doesn't understand everything. And so he has a teachable, humble spirit and wants to be taught. From where does he first get knowledge? Well, verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. It's first by being taught. We all need to be taught and it begins in the home when we are young. The son, or daughter is foolish in that they reject their parents' instruction. Learning from those in authority over them, who watch over them. They want their own way. A fool does not learn knowledge because he despises or rejects it. That's how you tell if someone's a fool. He doesn't want to be told what to do. He doesn't want to be instructed. He doesn't want to turn away from his own stubborn will. As verse 12 says, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. He doesn't want to change his ways. I want my own way. I don't want anyone to tell me anything else than my own way. And the consequence of rejecting instruction is found in verse 10. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof, will die those who set aside knowledge and leave the way that is the path they should walk they will face severe discipline for believers this is going to come from a father who loves them who's going to correct them for unbelievers it's going to be god abandoning them in their sin have your sin have at it we'll meet on judgment day The problem is that they hate reproof. They hate to admit any guilt or fault. They are too proud to confess sin and turn from it and would rather die in their sin than ever confess it. And this is all of us by nature, except for the grace of God. And the consequences are also seen in the household. Verse 6, In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. So as a general truth, the righteous have much treasure in their house. Again, a general truth, there's always exceptions. But their diligence, stewardship, careful planning, that they're not impulsive spenders, they're not foolish with their money, has caused them to have plenty. Now the wicked too may have much treasure. This verse doesn't say that they don't. However, it comes with much trouble. There's much conflict. There's much anxiety. There's much worry over losing their riches. There's constant pressure to get more. And there's never a satisfaction. It's never enough. Despite having treasure, it comes with much grief and sadness versus joy and gladness. They may think that their treasure would make them happy, but they end up not enjoying it like the righteous do. And so it's knowledge not material possessions that grant gladness and joy. And We see this in verses 13, 15 through 17. Verse 13 says, A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. Now the question is, what makes the heart either glad or sad? Well, verse 15, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. So the afflicted refers to those whose circumstances are filled with great sorrow and, and trouble, difficulty, trials, and, and tribulations, especially when it comes to one's provisions. Uh, affliction in the Bible is, is normally shorthand for those who are poor, and we have to acknowledge that one's circumstances does have a bearing on whether or not somebody is either glad or sad. Now, when we initially read the second half of this verse, that the cheerful of heart have a continual feast, we may think that it's a literal feast. That they are glad because they are not poor. They're not afflicted. They have plenty of provision. After all, a feast is not your average meal. It's not your average everyday meal. It's the best of meals. It's a full meal. It's the, the fattened calf and the best wine. So one would conclude... Of course they're cheerful of heart. They're always feasting, but not so fast. Look at verses 16 through 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Oh, we just read about having treasure with trouble. Verse 6, verse 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox in hatred with it. Now we see the real reason for gladness of heart. It's not ultimately because of material possessions or an abundance of provision, even though these are a cause of joy. But the ultimate reason there is gladness of heart is because of the knowledge of the Lord. This knowledge of the Lord is referred to as the fear of the Lord here. Remember that the fear of the Lord does not refer to being afraid of His judgment, as if Christ didn't die and pay for sins in full, as if Christ did not satisfy God's judgment on your behalf. Rather, the fear of the Lord is to stand in awe of Him, is to stand in awe of His steadfast love, to stand in awe of His mercy and grace. Psalm 147.11 says that the fear of the Lord is to place one's hope in His steadfast love. It's a place one's confidence in his love, that he does love you. And Psalm 130 verse 4 says that with God there is forgiveness that he may be feared. So this isn't afraid of him and withdrawing from him. Rather, this is standing in awe of him. Who is a God like you who forgives sin? You have forgiven me. You have loved me. Oh, my, my heart is filled with love towards you. That is what it means to fear the Lord. It means to stand in awe of Him. And this leads to how others are treated. Verse 17, better is a dinner of herbs where there is love than, fat, than the fatten ox where there is hatred. See, true gladness does not come from how much treasures you have because it's better to have the fear of the Lord. And to have a family of love rather than having much, as this verse says here. So it comes down to knowledge, true knowledge of God. That is what gladdens the heart, even when there is little and even when there is affliction in circumstances. That is why we can say, as the Apostle Paul says, we can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Finally, we turn. To the knowledge of God, jumping back up to verse three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And when Scripture says eyes of the Lord, it's understood that God doesn't have a, a body, he doesn't have literal eyes. A scripture is accommodated language. It says something true about God through ascribing human attributes to Him. Here, are eyes of the Lord being in every place refers to God being omnipresent, that is, everywhere present, and therefore omniscient, that is, all-knowing. Nothing escapes God's sight. God sees the good, that is, those who are His. And that means He cares for us, He notices our affliction, even when it seems like He's absent, He's there. He cares. He is with us to comfort us and give us grace. But he also sees the evil despite their deceitful ways, despite their deeds done in darkness and the depths of their evil heart. And so verse 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of the children of man. So if God sees the hidden and deep darkness of the underworld, sometimes described as hell, How much more the deep darkness of sinful man, which John Gill, a particular Baptist of the 17th century, said in his commentary, a second hell. The point is, the things that are hidden from the sight of man, which man cannot see, are not hidden from God. He clearly sees nothing can be hid from God. God knows our hearts. He knows every secret thought, plan, intention, and desire, which, by the way, is bad news. Sometimes people say, well, God knows my heart, as if that's good news. No, that's bad news. And knowing this knowledge of God, that he knows our hearts, leads us to see the need for a sacrifice and positive righteousness. So verses 8 through 9. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. So a sacrifice is what is offered up to God in order to appease him and to please him, whether it's an animal, a bird, fruit, grain, whatever it may be. This includes prayer as well, as David said in Psalm 141. May my prayer be counted as the evening sacrifice. So both sacrifice and prayer are taken together here. And the Lord abominates or hates the wicked, but accepts the upright. This shows that even the wicked are religious at times. I'm still amazed at how many incidents I know of people who have gone to church with the person they're committing adultery with, which is just mind-boggling but though they may be religious and go through the same religious motions as the righteous only the offering of the righteous are accepted and the hint as to why comes in the next verse it says the way of the wicked is an abomination the way they live is they pursue sin but this is in contrast to the one who pursues righteousness who lives a life pursuing not sin but righteousness But beloved, lest we think that it is on us to provide the sacrifice that God ultimately accepts and the righteousness that he loves, we need to be reminded once again of the gospel. Because God sees the depths of our heart. When he sees the depths of our heart, he sees all manner of unrighteousness and wickedness in it. Oh, We may cloak this before men, but it's open and laid bare before God. And anything we offer to God based on our own merits, our own works, our own righteousness, is despised by Him. What an insult it is to offer to the living God filthy rags. The only perfect sacrifice that has ever been offered to God is the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. He was the Lamb without blemish who offered up Himself to God to pay for all our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to cover the deep recesses of the darkness of our hearts. All of this has been washed away in His blood. And because of that sacrifice and that sacrifice alone, God is now well pleased with us. So it is only by trusting Christ and only Christ offered up to God the perfect, positive righteousness that He loves. He perfectly pursued righteousness. We do not perfectly pursue righteousness. We fall. We fail. We pursue our idols. We pursue sin. But Christ pursued righteousness. And He did it perfectly for us. And we get credit for that. And so it's only by trusting in Christ's blood in righteousness alone by which we are accepted by God. And then, and only then, only by faith, only by trusting in Christ's merits alone and His righteousness do we then offer up to God our lives as a living sacrifice, pleasing to Him, seeking to serve Him, not in order to gain favor or merit with God, but only out of gratitude for what He has done to cover all our unrighteousness and secure us in His favor forever. So it is with this knowledge and trust that we are able to serve God and walk in the wisdom that He has laid out for us here in Proverbs, using the tools that He has given us well for His honor and for His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for Christ because as we consider these Proverbs, and as we consider what we're to do, we know that we do not do them as we ought. We fall short. And so in the Proverbs here, we have the first use of the law. We, we see the greatness of our sin and misery. And we are led once again to Christ who pursued righteousness perfectly. who gave up Himself as a sacrifice that's well-pleasing and acceptable to you. And so we trust Him. We put our faith in Him as our only righteousness. And from that, we then see the third use of the law here in Proverbs as a guide for how we are to live. And we ask you to help us to do this. We want to love you. We want to live for you. We want to be wise. So we ask that you would even use your word and instruction uh, this afternoon to give us the grace we need and the power we need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, using our tongues, using our hands, using our knowledge, using everything you've given us well for your glory. We ask for this help in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.